these need to be exposed and these need to be brought to the attention of the world. Because otherwise, if you will neglect it again and again and again, tomorrow can be something even bigger. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, the story of how a nation fought back against great odds is continued in director Eugeny Afnievsky's documentary, Freedom on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, the film resumes its harrowing look at Ukraine's battle for freedom following Russian President Vladimir Putin's unprovoked invasion in early 2022, as told through the personal stories of civilians, children, soldiers, and doctors. In addition to Freedom on Fire, Afnievsky's directorial filmography includes the documentary features Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, Francesco, and Pray for Ukraine, the feature film Oy Vey, My Son is Gay, and episodes of The Bold and the Beautiful. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in New York, Afinievsky spoke with director Raymond DeFolita about filming Freedom on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom. Listen on for their conversation. I feel like last February, uh, it was an awfully long time ago in watching this, and my memory, and I'm probably a little bit faulty, a little bit's going to be paraphrasing, but my memory is that just a couple of weeks before the attack, uh, at a press conference, President Biden was asked what he thought was going on, the massing of troops, the military exercises, the tech. And he said something to the effect of, only one man knows what is going to happen. And again, I think I'm paraphrasing, but I believe he said, if, if he's going to do what it looks like, he's making a terrible mistake. He, he called this, in effect. My question for you is, when did you know that you had another story that you had to tell, that you were going to have to tell, how far ahead of our president's prediction, what did you think was going on? Because you've already chronicled this story. You know, it's interesting. Uh, for me, like for many Ukrainians, the war started in February 2014, immediately after Maidan, when Putin literally lost control over Ukraine. And 2014 was the real beginning of the war. Maybe not full scale, full invasion scale like this year, and the question through these eight years was when he will. And when all this military was brought towards the Ukrainian borders, a lot of people were asking, so when is the date? And it was obviously the day after the Olympic Games, after the China will finish Olympic Games, because Putin didn't want it to kind of enrage China. And some people were thinking earlier in February, but it was obvious that he will allow to finish in Olympic Games in China, and then he will start it. It's also interesting because it repeats the same cycle, because he started 
also his situations after the Sochi, when the previous Olympic Games was in Sochi. Uh, so Putin have all these kind of uh, scenarios that are coming over and over and over. But everybody were predicting that it will happen there after the Chinese uh, will finish the Olympic Games. At the same time, I will tell you, in the first or second day, I still was in disbelief. I not. It, it's unbelievable that this escalation happened, but then after second day, it was the full decision to start to document this and to go back to the archives because when we finished Winch on Fire in 2014, which you're familiar we did films for another 14 and 15. I filmed Crimea, I filmed Donetsk airport, the Debaltsevo, Ilavaisky Katyol, many events that happened. And I was thinking, I will never go back to these archives. I was thinking, we have this footage, but I guess we never used it, and I will not do another story in Ukraine. But then, February 22, I mean 2022, this year, I realized that eight years of this war that been neglected by the world, eight years of this crime that Putin was committing and nobody was punishing him, allowed him to continue do bigger crimes. And this need to be exposed, this need to be told to the world, and this need to be brought to the attention of the world. Because otherwise, if you will neglect it again and again and again, tomorrow, can be something even bigger unleashed. And I think that was A, how I realized when it's happened, and B, my desire to tell next chapter of their fight for freedom. So the, the, the mechanics literally of getting this film made, I mean, it, it, it all happens very quickly. And I just wonder, because you also have an audience of filmmakers, what's the ABC? What's the, the, what, what happens in order for you as a filmmaker to say, it's time for me to do this? Where are you at the time? How did you put together what crew you needed? I, I just, I think the, the practical also just seems so connected to, you know, the actual that we're seeing. So I'd love to know anything about that. Luckily, I had all my crew from Maidan there because all the Ukrainians. So going back to them, kind of reactivating people whom I knew since Maidan, who worked with me on my first chapter on Winch on Fire. Same time, the difference between Winch on Fire, Maidan story, it was one place, central square of Kiev, 93 days. Here, you have a fire across the entire country, and some of the things I needed to film outside even of Ukraine. I initiated a crew in Russia because I can't enter Russia since 2013. So I initiated crew in Russia. I've been filming in Poland. So for me, I literally expanded my crew, almost doubling it from the Maidan because we needed to film almost everywhere. You don't know what to expect, when to expect, and we needed more boots on the ground. So that's the first step and it's the first logical step. Expand crew to the maximum that you can have more and more eyes, more lens, more cameras on the ground. Now, because it's a war, of course, it's completely different scenario. So it was also a lot of uh, permits 
That's why you can see thanking Ministry of Foreign Affairs and everybody who familiar with my work since Maidan and who helped me with a lot of permits that allowing you to be present in all kinds of places where normally you can't have access. And that was the second step. Now, amount of footage that we started to collect was enormous. And I realized that I need immediately initiate editing because remembering from the cycle of Syria, I did the crisis from Syria and remembering how Syria was at the beginning of the, their war on the news. And then it literally went down. I knew that already after two, three, four months, same will happen with Ukraine. So I wanted specifically to get the movie done in four, five, six months maximum. So the world can be really remember, understanding that the war is not over. Already after first, second months, it was obvious that the war is not will end. And that from the first days I said, Ukrainian will win the question if it will be a short or a long term, like eight years that we witnessed from 2014. So after second months, we realized that we need to go into full editing campaign. I brought, if you saw the credits, all the entire team that was working on Vinch on Fire in Hollywood was there. Vils Nidarik, who edited Vinch on Fire. Jasha Klebe, who composed music on Vinch on Fire. Angus Wall, who was EP. So almost everybody from Hollywood side was on my side. Everybody dropped their jobs and went to help me to craft the movie. And with Will, we literally, from April, we had another editor who speaks the language. Then we added another American editor in May. Then we added, believe it or not, another six editors. We ended by June, have nine editors crafting this movie. Same time. Five in Kiev every day, two in Prague and two in US. Every morning, I personally, as a director, was starting with a Google uh, meeting with all editors across the globe discussing what we're editing. Technology-wise, uh, Angus Wall Company, uh, Make Make, they made, I don't know how it was possible, but I guess technology these days, that I've been able through the day be in a computer of each of my editors, literally being with him, seeing him and seeing what he editing. So it's allowed me through the technology, be present, like traditionally you and I can be present with the editor in the room. It's allowed me to be with them in a room and edit. It was fascinating this kind of uh, crazy pace, but it's allowed me to craft it literally in three months of editing with these nine editors. And Will orchestrated amazing, amazing work with them because he was literally putting logistics between all editors. And for me, I've been three times in Ukraine through that period of time, but I realized that I can interview, I can film, but I need also to be with the editor. So for me, it was back and forth, back and forth. Now, last shot of this movie, as you saw, was done on a, in Nikolaev on 9th of August. We literally finished moving to the 1st of August, delivering this to Venice. So that was the chase against the time. But I guess 
the desire of entire team to tell the story as quick as possible so we can influence our audience to stand for Ukraine and learn something about this type of the war that happening in today's world, the World War Three in real in real time that affecting the world. I think the desire to tell the story, the desire to bring the voices of Ukrainian people, the desire to kind of through the storytelling to call for action was so high. So that's allowed us to work 24 seven to make the movie. Mm. It's interesting too. Your focus is um, almost, well, there's almost no Zelensky in it. Uh, Zelensky is the face of America's understanding of the war, I think. Uh, I, I, but but um, but children are very much at the center of your film. What what was that? What was that decision like? We do see in Valoda, whom I met in 2016 before he became president, because all my movies since Maidan, I did post production in Ukraine, and I have a good relationship with. Um, a lot of companies in Ukraine. You have uh, Vladimir Zelensky at the beginning of the movie, as you saw, not as a typical president in front of the stand or by his table, but you're seeing him with the cell phone literally sending a message. And I think for me, it was important to emphasize everybody as a just a human being, just an ordinary citizen. Not just emphasize he is the president, here is the general. Because for me, the nation is the hero. Ukrainians are the heroes. They've been heroes for me since Maidan, when I witnessed their resilience. And I think I try to bring this kind of feeling of humanity in them and to show them as humans as the hero nation. That's why for me it was important not to have any of his speeches or not to have, for example, interview with him in his office, but to have something with him as an ordinary person. I had it the same with the Pope Francis in my previous movie. For me it was important not to kind of elevate one person above all others. I wanted to have everybody equal. And I think that's why you've seen Vladimir Zelensky only one time there. And he's saying a couple of great words which are reflecting everything what every person in Ukraine doing. Mm -hmm. Kids, women. I think when you're opening the TV, you're seeing war through the trenches, through the front lines. I try to show the war that you're not seeing on the news, war that happening inside of the country. Because like Natalia Nagorna said, there is no place, safe place in Ukraine. Only a few days ago, the suicidal drones from Iran killed people. Killed people inside of the country, way, way far away from the front lines. So for me, I wanted to bring the human stories of today's war that's not just happening on the front lines, but exactly inside of the country, inside of the ordinary cities. So I think that's the big difference of the war of 21st century, when the, the weapons are way sophisticated. Yes, during the Second World War, during every movie that we will look right now uh, of Second World War, the front lines are, where's the war? No, the war is across the entire country, and for me, the war is happening everywhere in this world because for me, the war also done through the camera. 
camera is the weapon in this case. And that's why I try to focus on the kids who are pure, on the women, because I try to show that the women's role in this war is equal to the men. And that's why I bring in fascinating characters like Natalia, Natalia Nagorna, who is a journalist, or Anya, who've been literally under the bombs for over two months inside of the Azov steel plant. And their resilience, their stand for the right things, their fight against the enemy. I think that's why I try to bring ordinary people, first of all, because I want to connect ordinary people to ordinary people. You know, when you show in this movie, it's like, it's the mother who prays every night that her child will wake up next morning. To the mother who today here in the United States in the morning wakes up and seeing the smile of their child. I think it's from human to human. And that's why I went to kids, to mothers, to ordinary people, because that's the human connection, human bridge. So how do you find them then? How do you find that extraordinary man with the tattoos and his shorts and who's just, who's the sort of, who, who I should be normally terrified by. And yet I'm absolutely like fascinated by his humanity and his empathy. Uh, and what, and, and what, and where do you find the, where do you find the elderly? Where do you find the children? How do you, how did you, how did you, how did you cast them? <laughs> you know, I interviewed over a hundred people and the, I usually working with friends, with fixers. In that case, I had a lot of people in different cities who were bringing me stories. And based on their stories, I was kind of going myself and interviewing because I, from the beginning, I had this vision that I want through the human stories tell these eight years. Like for example, Stas, the soldier on one leg, he's fascinating because he went through Donetsk airport. When the explosion happened, the wall basically knocked down both of his legs. One of the very famous heroes of Ukraine, uh, Igor Bronovitsky, he was with him and he uh, put it eyes on his lips and gave him a grenade and said, Stas, if you don't want to be captured by the Russian separatists, you can kill yourself. Stas lost his consciousness. Uh, he was captured uh, inside the prison. Inside, when he was captured, they cut his leg because one of the legs was really in bad shape. Then, in a prison exchange, in a soldier exchange, which we saw, Natasha was there. Uh, it was captured that he was brought back to Ukraine. Ukrainian doctor saved one of his legs. Immediately, he went back into training, and on one leg, he was jumping from the plane, he became commander, and he was one of the first who entered Irpenian Bucha this year when they were freeing, and he saw all this horror there. And you know what? These stories were fascinating. So somebody told me about him because I was looking for the character that can bring me from 2014, from the Donetsk airport, through the history of these eight years into the today's front lines. And that's how I found him. I was looking for somebody who fled Crimea and uh, been exposed to this war again. And that's how I found the history of the Vlasinka family. And that's a fascinating story because on its own, it's a counter-propaganda to the whole bullshit of Nazis. So, and like this, when I saw what I want to tell specifically through these eight years, 
my friends were helping me to find the stories. And I was following this, I was interviewing people, and like this, I was creating this narrative. Narrative that helped me to tell this eight years story. Not chronologically, I think in recent years, both of my movies, Francesco with the Pope and this one, they're not chronological, and they realize that you can tell stories not always going chronologically. And that's uh, something that helps sometimes not to follow time, but follow just the story that you can tell through the people. You, you mentioned earlier, you said you activated a crew in, in Russia. And, and so this is one of the things that I think, at least I find, I'm still trying to put together, and I, I probably speak for a few of you, I hope, how this works. Uh, you're, 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 you're the, what, what, what's, what's the danger you're in? What's the, what, what's the communication like? How are you, how are you able to do that? Um, how, how is that is, and is that a function of, of your savvy? Is it a function of their not quite understanding what, what's going on and just being too big and too obtuse perhaps? First of all, there is people who understanding the situation and honest filmmakers across the globe. Even when there is a totalitarian regimes in Iran, in many countries, including Russia, China, you still have people on the ground who really behind the truth and great journalists and great filmmakers. And I have access to these people because they want to contribute to the fighting for the truth. That's why this movie is called Fight for Freedom because uh, freedom on fire for me is not only a freedom of Ukrainian people on fire, it's freedom of the world on fire, it's freedom of speech on fire, it's freedom of expression on fire. It's a lot of freedoms that right now on the fire of this world. why I wanted to, to activate somebody in Russia and why I needed somebody in Russia. I interviewed many characters in Russia. I even met with some of them outside of Russia and it was necessary for me. I wanted to hear people who are wise enough to admit the horrors of Putin and I wanted also to hear different sides. I wanted to show how literally poisonous this situation and how it really kills the brains, and we saw it here on the screen. And at the same time, I interviewed a lot of people who are openly were saying Putin is a monster, telling about how the truth been created in Russia. Like, for example, many people remember uh, the lady in the news that jumped with the poster. I interviewed her twice and each time for two hours almost. And she told that to get into this place inside of the news broadcaster thing, it took four different types of the security to pass. And she was talking about not just security, National Guard, army that protecting all this. Inside of the broadcaster in Russian news sits a military person who protects it. That's how crazy it is in Russia. So for me, it was important to understand all aspects. That's why I needed also the Russian side. And you're seeing, you're hearing this. You're hearing the former diplomat who resigned in May, and I was one of the first with whom he agreed to go on the camera. And we spent hours conversing. He said so many things. And again, movie have limitations, two hours. But I have, as of right now, 20 terabytes of footage. So I interviewed... The, uh, the lady that she was the favorite actress of Putin and she at the beginning of the war 
Chupan Hamatova, she switched the sides. She, together with a few other artists, they signed a petition condemning this war. So for me, it was important to hear everybody's sides and then to tell this story. So I think it was practically important for me as the person who wanted to tell a comprehensive story from every side. So your previous uh, film was finished in 2014, I think. Oh. Winter on Fire was done. The first cut that I brought to Hollywood was 14. Netflix released in 15. Right. So I, I feel like the, the, um, the, the, the Ukraine on our, on our general uh, uh, American um, spectrum happens in 2017 or so with the first impeachment trial. And suddenly the name Zelensky becomes something that we know and there's a strange interaction and we don't quite understand what's going on. And was this was there any indication at that point to you that the American president, his relationship, which is still obscure to Putin, was going to then lead to a further and deeper, I'm not saying that you predict a war, but did you feel that there was another uh, uh, piece of history turning at that point that you made uh, needed to be ready to document it's interesting because uh, <laughs> i knew certain elements behind the scenes of um i knew certain things i was expecting that a lot of dirt will start to come with giuliani and with certain people who were against joe biden and i seen it through this kind of uh, issues that started to raise. So I saw that the different types of the history happening, but uh, in the same time, I also saw that Putin tried to either install his puppets or his kind of people whom he can control and through them he can control the narratives or control the certain situations like Yanukovych or in our case our former uh, and it was interesting to see how all this was going 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 and it was also understanding that at certain point through his decisions Trump will be doing certain things with Ukraine, some kind of uh, influencing certain things. The question of what it was, and I not was expecting actually to have full invasion during this period. I was understanding that when it will happen, it will be under different president. That was my assumption already by this time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to observe the history. I'm in today's world, people ask me, what is the predictions? And for example, I who seen all sides of this invasion, all kind of stories from Russia and who monitoring the narrative that happening in media, how quickly it changes there. I feel that uh, again, he's big time losing. He trying to sustain power. Um, we all know that every century gives us dictator who ends badly. So Putin's end, he already knows. He just trying to kind of f- trying to find a different ending to this story, which eventually will be the same ending like uh, Hitler and, and Napoleon had, Mussolini had. And I see that people around him at certain point will um, 
try to do a sweet deal with the West in order to find a very light capitulation plan, and they will sell Putin because he will be the one whom they will blame. And you will see how fast the media will turn from praising him to hating him and blaming everything on him. Mm-hmm. And he will be dead. The question when. And the most important thing, while Putin's narratives in today's world, and I will give you example, I am presenting the movie a lot in Europe because I see how right now Putin going, following narrative that I see among many European countries, America trying to keep this war because they are trying to enrich their pockets. And this is definitely makes Europeans rage high because they're thinking we are here having their homes freezing because of the gas and everything because they can't buy Russian they, they can't buy Russian gas but the problem is the Russian gas right now tricky you either condemning him as the terrorist or you buying his gas as the friend so at the end of the day Putin trying to isolate America from the European Union and keep them as uh, as a drug on his gas and Europeans with the narrative that comes right now in the media sometimes becoming really angry because they're thinking yes America is the one who is trying to push this war forward because they're interested in this thing and again to win this war we need to unite the world. We need to show the truth. And that's why I'm trying to bring this movie to the old world so they can see the truth and they can understand that what is the propaganda war that we're facing in today's world. You, you, and and uh, to not uh, re- reduce this strictly to a dramatic narrative, but you are a filmmaker. I think one of the things that struck um, America initially as, as, as so shocking and, and drew our, our interest suddenly was Zelensky's quick refusal for safe passage out of the country. And we thought we didn't know who this was. We didn't understand the strength of Ukraine. We didn't understand who this leader was. We only knew him again, as I said, from that one uh, uh, interaction. Were you surprised? I think from what I saw on my done, and I think that was a lot of discovery for me, as somebody who born in one country, raised in another country. I think Ukrainian people, they will never give up on their fight for freedom, fight for democracy. And they will not allow to conquer their country. They will stand for what they believe and they will die. And that's what I saw on Maidan, that we all witnessed in Winch on Fire. And that's what they're doing. They're fighting for their motherland. They're fighting for the future of their country. And I think that's what Zelensky proved in his actions. He stayed with his people fighting till death for his kids' future, for the future of his country. They're young. The country is young. And they look at their governments. They're all young, not like our, who all need to go in retirement. Uh, Yeah. So, you know what, and they're fighting for their future. They believe in what they're doing. So that's the impressive thing that I saw in 2013-14 on Maidan. That's what we're witnessing right now. Mm. Nothing changed. They are more united since Maidan. Yes, they are much more united. Putin, with all his hands, united this country, with all his actions around. 
I guess my final question is, are you ready for another film? Mm. About Ukraine? You know, people asking me. And uh, when I finished Winter on Fire, people ask me too if I will be doing uh, something because the war was there and people were asking, oh, you will do something about Donetsk, Donbass. And, and I said, no, there is many other filmmakers who can do movies there. There is great Ukrainian filmmakers who do movies. And you know what? I guess you never say no because I learned myself that I returned back because I felt not only urgency, my moral obligation to tell this story. So I don't know. I don't want to predict the future. I can predict certain things in the future. But you know, it's interesting. The movies found me on its own organic way. Winter on Fire, when it's finished, I met Syrian doctors who were educated in Ukraine during the period of uh, when Ukraine was former Soviet Union and they were literally like brothers with Syria and these doctors were helping to people to fight on Maidan and specifically on the last days when a lot of shooting happened they were helping with the wounded. I met these Syrian people. I even saw Syrian flags on Maidan. I have pictures somewhere. And that brought me to the story of Syria. I finished Syria and I was deeply shocked, wounded emotionally with my post-trauma. And I was looking for some hope, some humanity to show. And I was looking for something. I ended telling the story of the Pope. And it's helped me to tell the story of the hope and many, like 40 different topics of the world and different solutions, bringing hope. I finished the movie, we released it, and I didn't know what I'm doing next. 24th of February happened, and I realized I need to be there, and I'm going there. So I don't know what will be tomorrow, but it's kind of, it's it's a call from inside what's happening, and you're finding yourself in the next human story that you can either inspire or bring the voices. You know, I call it probably what attracts me. It's some kind of creating call for action where I can be creating uh, advocacy, activism, and action with my storytelling. Call for action, triple A. Not AAA like Alcoholic Anonymous, but AAA as activism, advocacy, and action. And I guess that belongs to all my movies, and that's what attracts me to bring human stories through ability of our platform that you and I can use here in Hollywood and bring these voices that they can, that need to be heard, first of all, and then we can contribute to change in this world. Contribute to the change that we will bring better worlds for the future, that we can create better worlds for the future. I hope I can inspire people to stand for Ukraine and more quickly achieve the peace. I will be the, the happiest filmmaker if it will happen. So that's, that's my goal and that's my storytelling. And I guess, I don't know what will be the next story, but if it's something will come to me back and I need to tell next story about Ukraine or who knows what will happen tomorrow, then I will be there. I, I think I speak for all of us. I salute you and I'm so inspired. And thank you so much for this work and for thank coming you. here. Thank you. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. 
We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 